Welcome, Jeff, to the Productive Producer Podcast. Yep, thanks, Max. Great, thanks for coming along. And today we're going to talk about confinement feeding. Correct. So we had a below average autumn and winter, and they haven't forecasted a great spring for us. So a lot of people are considering confinement feeding at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and that's been a, an ongoing um, pattern over the last five to ten years. A lot of people have, have put in these areas. Um, there's been funding, uh, for example, through LLS to help at times. Um, the New England don't often feed um, or don't have the infrastructure and the like a lot, but it certainly is worth looking into uh, for that little bit of cost for establishing a confinement area. There's a lot of pros, a lot of benefits. Yep, and confinement feeding isn't just for drought situations. It can also be used as opportunistic feeding. Exactly, yeah, yep, yep. But seasonal conditions. Um, you may be looking to try and just push some ewes along prior to joining. Um, maybe try and finish off a tail of lambs. Uh, give your pastures a rest um, and just wait for that bit of rain. Yep. So there's a whole suite of things we could talk about today with confinement feeding so we'll just cover off on some of the more critical areas today so when we're talking about confinement feeding we're going to be talking about feeding in a confined area or a pad rather than a paddock situation yeah yeah we need to restrict their movements um, by doing that to reduce the energy required by the animal uh, and you save on feed costs and you get those benefits of Saving your pastures. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, there's targets that were put in place years ago when we ran a series of these sort of days, um, workshops for the LLS, um, looking at, at maintaining at least 70% ground cover. Um, that would still be a target that I'd like to sort of keep at. Um, and just to give that pasture a bit of reprieve, um, not just prior to rain, but also for it to regenerate. So you can get people to consider using... 70% ground cover as a trigger point for moving stock into a confinement feed area or a confined paddock? Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting when you say confined paddock. I mean, they're also known as sacrifice paddocks yeah. and that. Um, and I just, just on that, and we're probably going to go through on recommended stocking densities and the like and area per animal, um, 10 to 20 acres sort of maximum um, and depends on how many mobs you're going to have. Uh a lot of times they're pretty well seen like a feedlot. Uh, a lot of the um, principles are the same. Um, so we just need to lock them up in a smaller area. I personally like to give them a bit more space than what we recommended in our little booklet, um, just for social stress reasons. Yep, and we will, might mention that book as we start, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, we'll, it's available in PDF or if you drop into one of the Northern Tablelands offices, and so we talk one of the ladies at the desk. They might be able to rustle you up a copy. It's called A Guide to Confinement Feeding Sheep and Cattle in New South Wales. Yep. Yeah, we put that together, myself and Jeff House, who's a beef cattle um, extension or beef cattle consultant in New South Wales, um, for the LLS with um, Brett Littler um, from the Central Tablelands LLS. And it's a good little book. Yep. So a lot of the principles we're going to talk today are focused around sheep, but they are transferable to cattle? Yeah, pretty much. Um, pretty much. Nutrition and management-wise, pretty much the same, just bearing in mind that cattle are going to be 8 to 10 times 
um, like feed intake and the like that sheep will be. Um, but pretty well a lot of the, um, the principles in terms of densities, uh, feed bunk requirements, space requirements and that sort of thing um, are pretty well drawn from the cattle industry. Um, there's been some research work done on the sheep side, but, uh, yeah, and they're interchangeable, transferable. Yep, and so these treaters will be similar, very similar for cattle enterprises as well for winter confinement feed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, with the cattle side, I mean, sheep are that much more efficient, grazing, grazing-wise, that much more efficient than cattle. Um, but cattle can do a lot of damage to the soil, uh, your soil structure and, and your pasture base. So, yeah, we just need to get them off um, or have an area like a sacrifice um, paddock, as I said, that um, we can accept that there's going to be a bit of damage done to. And these confinement feed areas were used quite well during those wet periods. We had people really having issues with pugging in their soil, so their soil was bogging up, particularly in those basalt areas. So people chose to confinement feed some of particularly their cattle to get them off those pastures and save their soils because it cost a lot of money for some people to renovate those mm. paddocks post those wet periods. Well, you're right, and as you mentioned before, they're not just for drought. I mean, they are a very handy little um, management area that you can use. Um, you may not use it for two or three years, um, but then it's the structure's there, everything's there, ready to go when you do need to. So, Jeff, what are some key considerations people should look at before confinement feeding? Yeah, I guess you look seriously at your breeding herd um, and offloading any stock that may not be pregnant or may be... Um, Expendable, I guess. Um, reducing numbers first and foremost. Um, looking into like establishing an area it can be reasonably costly, um, and but you want to make sure that you can handle the number of stock that you have on on hand, um, and importantly that you have the feed available. And feed storage facilities. How yeah, important are they? Yeah, very much, very much. Um, and again, that's one of the issues with a lot of people throughout the New England and. In Queensland, from where I'm based, uh, they haven't had a lot of feeding in the past um, and the infrastructure hasn't been on farm. But um, I'm certainly seeing in the last couple of months with the calls I've taken from producers that the last drought really scared them, uh, really did some damage. So they're all being proactive. They're looking into things like confinement areas and and things like silos or um, you know, getting their feed or the grain or hay sort of shored up now. And how does confinement feeding stack up on a labour-saving um, basis? Yeah, look, it does for sure because instead of, for example, running around 10 mobs and feeding out, uh, even if you're only trail feeding every second day, you know, you, you're just doing that locally in one small area. When you talk to people and discuss sites, what should people be looking at? You've got to be mindful of... of how sensitive it is to the environment. Um, we don't want to sort of establish on environment, environmentally sensitive areas like um, if you're on a very light soil, sandy soil, where infiltration into this subsoil or water table might be an issue. We want to try and avoid those sort of soil types. Um, we don't want to set up, or we don't recommend that you set up on a water course, um, for example, using a creek as the water base. Um, again, because we don't want any contaminants getting into the, um, the water system. 
So access to bores, access to good dam water that you'd reticulate into a trough system. Yeah, exactly. So bores are a godsend. Um, we do recommend, and it's outlined in the booklet, um, for troughing. Uh, a, for saving water. Um, B, using dams and the like. I mean, during a drought, all dry seasonal conditions, they do become boggy um, and they do increase in contamin contaminants. Um, so we try and steer away from that for sure. When people are looking into putting in a confinement feeding area, should they think about testing the water source before? Water's a really difficult one. It's not too bad if the stock are born and bred on the property. You usually find that they can tolerate the water. Um, but yes, definitely that's another step that you look at. Testing the water, if possible, take means to improve the quality of the water. Um, we generally recommend you have at least two to three days supply on hand um, in case you do have a breakdown of somehow uh, in the confinement area. Yep, and what about basalt soils? Like, they can bog up quite easily, so soil base. If you're on that basalt country, would you be looking into, would you recommend bringing in some gravel or doing anything there? Unfortunately, you're probably never going to find a perfect site. Um, the heavier soils, again, we'd recommend that you wouldn't set up there for the reason that you um, you actually outline. you know, they'll pug up. Uh, and that's one reason why I like to actually reduce stocking density or give the animals more space um, because when you do get a bit of wet weather, it's not going to pug up as bad. Um, it's, it's going to be a little bit of give and take. Um, you might have what you think is a great site. It might be close to your feed reserves, um, close to your working yards, and the like, um, but it may not be a, a particularly good soil type. So maybe we look at moving it at the confinement area a little bit further away um, and trying to get the best of both worlds. Finding that balance. Yep, yep. So you mentioned it before, but we might dive in a little deeper into stock densities and mob size. Yeah, look, on the sheep side, it's basically five square metres per animal. Again, I prefer to give them a bit more space for social stress reasons. Um, density, so, uh, sorry, uh, mob sizes on sheep, we generally recommend around 350 if we're doing lambs, um, young stock, a maximum of around 350. Um, older, older stock like ewes, yeah, you can run in 500 to 1,000, provided you provide enough trough space, both feed and water trough um, space to, um, to, to reduce that stress. And what are those ideal numbers for trough space and water space with sheep? On the trough space side, it really depends whether it's single side access or double side access. If it's single side access, we basically say uh, 25 to 30 centimetres per animal. If it's double side access to the troughing, um, you can just about halve that. And it's not much different for cattle. It's, it's around 35 to 40, I think, um, centimetres trough space for cattle. On the water side, um, there's no definitive yes or no, this is the way to go, but the most important thing is that you have supply on demand. So you've got to have good pressure. Um, sheep or cattle don't all drink at once. Um, they'll drink throughout the 24 hours. Um, but you would hopefully have enough trough space where you might have up to 10% of the flock or the herd able to access water. So flow rate is really important. It's critical. Yeah. It's critical, yep. If the water's got to be there on demand. 
Yeah. Um, just on that too, and look, most people looking at confinement feeding in the summer period, <clears throat> it gets really hot. Just make sure that you bury your supply lines, your water supply lines, um, because water temperature can really impact on intakes, which will then impact on feed intake and performance. And also <clears throat> dust sediment, like I've experienced with some of the people I've worked with, if there's a film of dust that settles on top of your trough, you're having all your sheep or all your cattle f- fighting to feed where the water flows in. Mm. Yep, exactly, that float valve end, whether it's because that's where the better quality water's coming in um, or whether it's aerated water that's coming in that attracts them, but they tend to go to that float valve end. Um, I've certainly seen over, over the years some um, interesting ways of actually breaking up that that dust film, which can really impact on an animal drinking. Um, a fair few people actually going into agitating the water. Um, I had one chap down in southern New South Wales when I was based down there actually bypassed um, the float valve in the trough uh, and used three-quarter inch gal pipe with holes drilled in it. And so the water ran into the trough out of these holes. And, and he said sheep would actually preferentially suck water out of those those holes. But you know, the idea was to break up that uh, dust film um, and also that sound of running water, I think, stimulates animals to drink. In those people who have a... Conf- uh, sacrifice paddock, would you be encouraging them to fence off the dam? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you'd need to look seriously at any runoff that may run in or towards the dam, so maybe looking at putting some diversion banks in, a little bit of earthwork. You generally shouldn't have to do too much, um, but, yeah, you really, and, and the EPA in particular, don't really want to see any contamination of, of groundwater. Yep. There's some easy methods in some of those articles written about how you can manage that flow rate without putting too much, oh, sorry, manage that sediment impact without putting too much earthworks in with hessian and all kinds of bits and bobs. Yeah, yeah, and it's, again, you don't need to spend a lot of dollars. One thing we've always said with these confinement areas, just keep it simple. Um, But, look, go the extra mile to try and make sure that there's not going to be any issues down down the track. Um, in this day and age with animal activists and the like, um, we've got to prove that we are, you know, we're working for the animal's welfare. Mm. And things like boggy yards or boggy pens and, and uh, erosion and the like and, and dust, you know, dust, which can be a huge issue over the summer months, um, can impact on animal welfare. Yep. So some baseline data suggests that water can impact... Um, livestock performance between 20 and 30%. So mm. during these confinement feedings and even when it rains and you're moving stock out, if you've got dirty dams, that will then also impact livestock. So managing the quality of water that's flowing into the dams is also important. Yep, good point, good point. And just on that too, I, I guess it's critical when you release stock from these confinement areas, particularly if you're coming out of a drought, and you've got a green pick, we've had a bit of rain, just don't release them too early. Um, I know it's uh, on a monetary side you'd like to because it's costing dollars every day they're in there, but we actually lose more stock post-drought than we do during a drought. Producers have become very, very efficient at feeding. When we talk about pen design, what, what have you seen work well? 
If you're doing confinement feeding for maintenance, um, probably the best way to go are troughs, um, open troughs. We, we don't recommend just trailing on the ground. Um, some serious health issues can arise from that. Um, you can have sand impaction, coccidiosis, salmonella, all that sort of thing spread by continually running grain out on the ground, particularly if you run it on the same area. Um, in the manual, we've actually listed a lot of the common materials that you can use um, and given indicative costing per metre. Um, most people will probably look at conveyor belting, um, which is quite simple to actually set up. And then you look at your infrastructure, your fencing and that sort of thing. And really depends on you know, what you've got on hand at the moment and what it's going to cost you to subdivide. Yep, and square versus rectangle pens, do you have a preference? It's interesting. I Look, I've, I've researched for years seeing if there's a perfect design. And the closest I've come to is a research trial that ran sheep at 10 square metres per head. So that's basically double what the recommended um, area per lamb or sheep is here in Australia. And square versus rectangular pens. And from the work they did, they actually found that those sheep in the square pens did less activities that cost energy. Yeah, look, they didn't walk as much. They weren't expending um, energy unnecessarily. So on that trial work, which is the closest I can find to a confinement or feedlot sort of system, I think square pens are a good way to go. One of the problems with a square said, pen, though... You said square pens are the way to go. Square pens, yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah they, they were the more efficient in that trial. Until you have to get them out. Exactly right, exactly right. A, a rectangular pen's probably a lot easier to actually get a mob out um, compared to a square. Yep. Um, one benefit of a square pen versus a rectangular, normally a rectangular pens will run, say if you've got open troughing at the front of the pen, if it's a long, thin, rectangular pen, well, then you're limited how much troughing you can actually run at the front, um, whereas a square pen, you know, potentially you're going to have more area, um, more length of troughing at the, at the front of the pen. Yeah, okay, that's some good information there. If we move on to feeding requirements, how would you recommend people go about formulating a ration? Again, it really depends on what stage or, or state that animal's in. Um, it is always cheaper or better to try and maintain condition on an animal, uh, particularly during a drought, than to try and catch up later. Um, if you're looking at young stock, we've got to take into account protein intakes, which are quite high compared to older mature stock. Energy is always the driver. Um, there's some really good tools for actually looking at the cost or working out the cost per unit of energy for feeds. Um, and, and, and buy principally on energy first and foremost. As I said, take into account the protein requirements of younger stock in particular. Older stock, like a mature sheep, only needs 7 or 8% protein in the diet, um, and most, most feeds are going to um, provide that. It's not until we have mid to late pregnancy um, and then le leading into lactation that we really see the energy and protein needs really change quickly. Yep, and comparing a total mixed ration to those people who might put hay out in hay feeders, comes yeah. back to a cost basis, does it? Oh, yes and no. Um, look, on the cattle side, I'd definitely look at a total mixed ration um, if you've got the equipment on farm. Um, a lot of producers won't have the equipment 
um, for actually providing a total mix, which is basically all your roughage and your grains all mixed in together. Um, sheep or trial work with sheep's actually shown that um, whole grains in particular, are not you don't need to crack grains, um, and providing hay separate uh, is is quite an efficient way to go. Um, a total mix ration potentially will prevent an animal from sorting anything they don't really want to eat, but sheep are very good at doing that. And just the cost involved labour-wise with preparation and feeding out total mix rations, um, yeah, a lot of producers with sheep probably don't go that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And self-feeders versus um, troughs? Thoughts or comments? Yeah, if you have the self-feeders on farm, well and fine. If you have to go and buy them, um, they're really expensive. Um, most self-feeders, commercial self-feeders for sheep, uh, work on a leak principle where they try to restrict actual intake, but the feed's there 24-7, and if they want to work at it, they will probably get a kilo or better out of those feeders per day. And if you're just doing a maintenance feed, self-feeders are really hard to regulate. Um if it's drought slash maintenance feed, troughing is probably the way to go. Yep, and roughage source. My um, look, generally, I recommend that sheep need at least ten percent roughage in their diet. Cattle, twenty percent. Um, I don't necessarily push for really good quality hay. Um, that's expensive, particularly during a drought. I'm quite okay with using something like barley straw. It seems to be the pick of the cereal straws. Um, yep, we're going to get some wastage. Um, there are some hay racks that you can actually look at purchasing or making yourself that can look to reduce wastage of your, of your roughage. But I'd always recommend we keep roughage in the system. Um, with sheep, yes, we can feed 100% grain because basically every time they take a bite, 70% of the grain that they swallow goes in whole before they chew it. Then they chew the cud. So that grain acts like little bits of roughage. Um, So sheep, yep, cattle, I'd definitely look at having some sort of roughage in there. As I said, sort of a minimum of about 10% in the ration. For sheep, a bit more for cattle. A bit more for cattle, a bit more for cattle. But what we really just want to do is, is stimulate the rumen. We don't need to necessarily get all the energy or protein. It doesn't need to be a good quality roughage. It's just there to, it's called effective fibre, you know, stimulate the inside of the rumen, leads to the release of digestive enzymes and juices and keeps the whole system working. And slow and steady wins the race with grain introduction. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, By all means, use a a, um, buffer if you can. Uh, and there's a range of buffers you can use. Now, buffers can be anywhere like bentonite, which is not a true buffer, but it'll help minimise acidosis or grain poisoning. Um, bicarb of soda. There's a great product called Acid Buff, um, which is a seaweed extract that most pellet manufacturers use. Uh, by all means, look at including buffers uh, to try and minimise that impact of acid that's being produced in the rumen. So for those people who don't know... Buffers help stabilise the rumen pH and reduce yeah. the chances of acidosis or grain poisoning. That's right. We we tend to interchange with that acidosis, grain poisoning yeah. terms, but, I mean, you can get grain poisoning from pellets. All right? Pellets that are grain-based, um, you can get what's yeah, grain poisoning, but we tend to like to call it acidosis. It's basically an overload of starch in the system that the animal's not adapted to, um, and we have a change in the bugs in the stomach, 
and we head towards those that prefer more acidic conditions. They produce more acid. It's just a it's just a cycle, and um, eventually you end up with dead stock. So, yeah, like you say, keep it simple, take it slow, um, and by all means include buffers if you can. When should or when do you recommend people consider pellets versus grain in a ration? Actually, the last drought, I will say pellets were pretty comparable when it looked at what it cost you to produce that ration on farm versus buying pellets in, but it's a little bit different at the moment. Um, I tend to be a bit hard on pellets, unfortunately. Sorry about that, but... Um, they'll say they've got fibre in there, but it's ground fibre. To their credit, most um, pellet manufacturers do recommend that we keep roughage out in the system. Um, you can go a full diet, pelleted diet, um, and rough rule of thumb is the bigger the pellet, the more roughage in that pellet because they need to dry that, that pellet, whereas the smaller ones, three to five mil diameter pellets, don't have as much roughage. Um, so you can go on a full pelleted diet, with roughage, or you can put in your supplementary pellets, which might be there to increase something, something like your protein intake, or provide a buffer. Yep, yep. and minerals. It's really important to get the mineral balance right. Yep. Because you can lead to a whole host of issues if that's not right. No, exactly, exactly. But, um, I mean, there's 11 or 12 sort of major minerals. The only ones that really impact... Uh, or they really need to be worried about or concerned and do something about when we're grain feeding, um, a sodium, so we add salt, calcium, so we add lime, magnesium, we add products like Causemag um, or even something like dolomite or acid buff, and potentially phosphorus, and if you're a wool-based wool sheep enterprise, maybe some sulphur, which you can provide by adding gypsum. So... You can go and buy the blocks and licks. They're quite expensive on a per tonnage basis. To be honest, most times you can meet most of the animal's requirements um, by making up your own licks on farm. Yep, and in, how would you go about incorporating those into the rations? I would always love to see them on the grain. So we know that anything that eats the grain gets its share of that, that mineral. Um, unfortunately, they tend to settle out and the like. There's a few little tricks you can use. You can actually... Mix, so your salt, lime, uh, and cause mag. Uh, if, if you're providing those three, mix those up in water, auger them through with your grain, and so they coat the grain. Um, you can mix them in oil if you wanted to, but it's a little bit more expensive. Um, I actually prefer, as I said, to see it on the grain, well and fine, but I'd also have loose licks out there. Okay, so I'd have it out there 24-7 throughout the year. And I can't explain why at times cattle and sheep won't touch the licks and other times they go for them. I don't personally believe that they know that they've got what's called nutritional wisdom. Um, most times they're attracted to a lick because of the salt um, and that sodium content. Uh, has been shown though, look, on, on lighter soils compared to heavier soils, they will go more for something that's got calcium in the supplement. So, But um, rough rule of thumb, 2-2-1, two parts salt, Two parts lime, one part coarse mag. Okay, and that'll give you sodium, your calcium and your magnesium. Or there's a few other, and I think we've got to mention in the book too, there's a few other um, mixes that if you just went salt and dolomite, dolomite provides calcium and magnesium. And for those people who are putting it in their um, 
cell feeders, you just got to accept the fact that there's going to be a little bit of rust in there associated with the <coughs> sodium. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's the main reason most people don't like putting in cell feeders. Plus, it tends to settle out, um, and and you know, potentially bridge that cell feeder and means more cleaning. Uh, so, shade or no shade? On the tablelands, it gets pretty cold. Our summers don't get hot. The closer you are to the range, sheep, do we need shade? Look, I'll always advocate we have shade. Uh, I do say at the workshops, personally, I don't believe sheep need shade. Cattle, yes, definitely. It always provides shade for cattle. Um, the reason I'd say that sheep may not necessarily need shade, and there's a proviso there, if we have a stinking hot day with no wind flow and, and really humid conditions, yeah, sheep are going to suffer. So any bit of shade is going to help. Um, but there's such good insulation with that wool. Um, all the hair breeds, uh, the dorpers and the like, are very good at regulating body temperature. Um, on the cattle side, uh, well, both sheep and cattle will regulate body temperature through panting, um, and that's where water quality becomes really important. Um, and maybe looking at shading your water troughs to give cooler water as well. Um, but, but sheep, about 65 70% of their temperature regulation, heat regulation, is through panting through the nose, or breathing through the nose and panting. So you'll see sheep doing things like, if they haven't got shade, standing next to each other with the head in the shadow of a neighbour or laying down flat so they reduce reflective heat off the ground. So sheep have... Um, much better mechanisms for um, regulating body temperature than, than the cattle. Uh, yeah, on the cattle side, I, I'd definitely look at having some sort of shade. Um, I guess most people will probably look at using trees. Um, they may well die in time, um, particularly if they're native trees, because phosphorus output from manures will over time kill the trees um, if they don't get ring bark. So by all means, um, you know, protect the trees, protect the base and the trunks of the trees. Yep, and is there anything else you want to emphasise or you've seen well, done well in feedlots that you get people to consider? I mentioned a couple of times the social stress issue. I'm really big on it. Um, providing more space, providing them with something they can do. Some really good uh, trial work actually on goats in Queensland about 10 years ago um, that actually showed by providing double the space, so... In that trial, it was 6 and 11 square metres per goat um, and providing an enriched environment um, where they had chains and ties hanging from trees and tree trunks and that that they could climb on. Those goats that were in the enriched environment with more space, they had about a 33% reduction in aggressive behaviour at the feed trough, a 33 or 36% reduction in shy feeders, and an increase in growth rates. So let's give them something to do. Let's give them a bit more space. That's the main thing I'd, I'd, uh, I really haven't pushing because the five square metres rule that uh, we stick with with um, area for sheep, that come out of uh, trial work that was done with the live sheep organisations and, and that was done on older stock. Um, a lot of the stock that we'll have in these confinement areas will be young stock and I just think social stress is, is a critical issue. Um, the other thing uh, is backgrounding or pre-training animals. Yeah. Um, and look, I do it every year. 
Uh, prior to weaning, I know in sheep in particular it works well. We don't yard wean on the sheep side anywhere near as much as the beef cattle blokes do. Um, but doing those sort of things, you know, yard weaning, get them used to the conditions, to a feeder or a trough or a water trough, uh, to us, right, or, or to dogs or to hay racks, getting them used to that sort of thing. Um, on the sheep side in particular, I know we usually recommend uh, just trail feeding for a couple of weeks prior to weaning and that way the ewe will teach the lamb that this is a feed, this is a grain. And there's some really good trial work that actually shows that if, say, that lamb has been trained to recognise wheat as a feed, well then, while it's with mum, when it uh, it's maybe provided with barley or triticale or something later on in life, it'll go to that or recognise that as a feed quicker compared to those lambs that hadn't been trained onto wheat. And that brings me to another thought. You're always going to get that tail end in your wiener lambs or your cohort. Mm. Do you persevere with feeding those through or do you look at bushing those or moving those on? <clears throat> yeah, prior to the last six months when store lamb values really dropped away, um, I'd, I'd definitely say let them go. We usually find, and it'll be the same for the cattle side too, you take those shy feeders out of the system, you provide them in a, put them in another area, okay, and they'll pick up, they'll pick up. So inherently there, there are some lambs or, or young calves and the like that, that are going to struggle, whether it's the environment um, or whether they just don't go to the feed. But, yeah, take them away, put them in another area, give them a bit more space, take the stress out of the system, and I think you'll find that they'll turn around. Yep, so mm. we've covered quite a bit of content and there's a lot of information to talk about within confinement feeding. So if you're chasing more information on this, we did mention that manual earlier, it goes into depth. There's some good um, resources around the economics of confinement mm. feeding. So do look into that book. We can put a few links into the show notes. Any, any comments on the economics? Um, what comes to mind, when I was in New South Wales DPI, we put together a um, feedlot calculator. So it was principally for working out profit or potential profit and risk prior to going into a feedlotting enterprise. But look, it can be used as a confinement feeding to have a look at what it's going to cost you. Um, it'll generate and tell you how much um, feed you need on, on, on farm. Um, it'll give you a cost per unit of, um, of feed. Uh, it'll tell you whether or not you've got a balanced ration. Uh, it'll tell you whether or not you need to add more calcium and that sort of thing. So that was actually um, through the uh, Sheep CRC, which is now finished, but it can be downloaded, the, the um, Sheep CRC feedlot calculator from New South Wales DPI website. Yeah, that's another great tool to consider. Mm. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Max. It's been a pleasure. 